Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, American lobsters could soon be red-listed with consumers and restaurants banned from purchasing the crustacean. Plus, is the multi-billion dollar sale of Rhode Island's national grid dead? And New Hampshire's House of Representatives will start to meet in person again this month, despite pleas from immunocompromised Democratic colleagues. These stories and more during our regional news roundtable. Later in the show, women's fitness is a multi-billion dollar industry today. Hard to believe that there was a time when women were thought too weak to exercise. Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World, chronicles the twists and turns in the American women's fitness movement. It's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me remotely, Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson from WNHN. Hi, Arnie. It's been a long time, Kelly. Good to be here. (laughs) Good to have you. Tim White, Target 12 investigative reporter for WPRI. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Hi, Kelly. I'm excited to be here. I'm glad to have you. And Jeanette Barnes, reporter and producer for CAI. Welcome, Jeanette. Hello, Callie. Good to be here. I'm going to start with you, Jeanette. Everywhere there's the whole back-to-school mask, no-mask discussion. Down at the Cape, it looks like there is a bit of a kerfuffle. So how many are on one side and how many are on the other side right now, or is it still evolving? Well, yes. Uh, I would say at this point, the majority of Cape districts have voted to lift their mask mandates, but not all of them have lifted them yet. One of the earliest ones to lift it was in Falmouth. um, And that was interesting because there was an end the mandate demonstration right before the meeting as the school committee members were heading inside to vote. Demonstrations like that have really not been common on the Cape at all. And it seemed like the school committee did take that into consideration. Another one of interest was in Nauset. They have four towns in their district, Brewster, East Ham, Orleans, and Wellfleet. Um, and they decided they want to kind of rewrite a new policy before they drop masks. Going the more cautious route, we had Provincetown and Truro. Uh, they are both keeping masks until at least mid-March. And of course, a lot of the idea there is to wait out any potential surge in cases after the winter break. Uh, Over on the South Coast, Fall River also went with mid-March initially, then they pulled it back to March 7th with all the uh, loosening of the CDC guidelines on masks. And the 7th also is the date that New Bedford chose to end its mandate. Again, a lot has changed in the last couple of weeks. Kids went to school on Friday, for example, thinking that um, it was their last day of the mandate, but that uh, they'd still be wearing masks on the bus. And then over the weekend, parents started to get word, right, that the mandate on buses was coming to an end as well. 
So, Jeanette, how much was influenced by the ending of the school vacation week, which seemed to me to be an inappropriate time to lift a mandate when those kids were coming just back from vacation and had been mingling with lots of folks? I'm saying this, but I've already written a commentary about it. People have heard it. But I thought that was an odd timing. Right. Certainly, um, that was I would say the main argument against doing it right away, of course, but it, some districts, some school committees, I think just were not uh, prepared to to stand with continued masks and probably in the face of, of pressure from families who wanted their children to stop wearing them. But that was, certainly was an important argument that Provincetown and Truro, for example, decided to follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, Tim, in Rhode Island, most school districts, have they lifted it or not? Where were you? Yeah, well, Governor Dan McKee uh, ended the statewide mask mandate for March 4th. So as you point out, that's a a week now after uh, school vacation ends. So giving the school districts a week to kind of figure things out. And they've also, the state, sent a lot of testing kits home with uh, the kids to make sure that they test after the end of February break to see if they're positive or not. So basically what the governor did was he puts it on the shoulders of the the school committee. So it's not the hot potato isn't in his lap anymore. And I think, uh, Callie, what we're seeing is predictably uh, sort of a difference between urban, suburban and rural school districts. Uh, The largest school district in the state, Providence, which I should note is state controlled, um, is continuing with mask wearing. But the other school districts, the vast majority are leaving it up to the students and the teachers if they want to wear masks. I think, you know, what we'll see pretty much within those school districts is most of the students will will take off their masks. Just one quick note, I have two kids in public school and mm. my daughter made an interesting point to me. She said, Dad, you know, there was something, it was sometimes easier for us when the governor had the, the mask mandate in, in effect because it removed that social pressure. Right. Uh, so uh, in other words, you have a lot of students who either mom and dad or their guardians want them to wear the mask or they want to, but they're going to feel that kind of peer pressure to, to take them off. And she made that point of that's gone now. And so there's sort of that social aspect that's going to be at play. I think we're going to be hearing more about that. Over in the live free or die state, what are y'all doing, Arnie? Oh, what do you think? <laughs> um, New, New Hampshire schools will no longer be able to mandate masks under the state's new public health guidance on COVID-19. I mean, this is this has been the the ongoing fight. And and what I what I thought was interesting was that you said that at Falmouth it was the first time you actually saw a demonstration. And I guess I'm going to ask the question since that's all we see here: um, is that is that demonstration real or memorix? You said it was unusual to see it on the Cape. So I'm just wondering whether, as you sort of talked to some of the people that were out there demonstrating, how many of them, you know, were connected to the school? I I almost feel like sometimes I I look at these demonstrations and try to figure out what was the motivator there? Are these really angry parents or something else outside the the Falmouth school system that's sort of motivating this? But uh, no, in in New Hampshire, you're not going to be able to mandate masks, but they are going to give them some sort of an opportunity to have a glide path to get there, but eventually they can't mandate it. Well, I would say, Jeanette, you can answer for the Cape, but I would say around here, those were the parents, for sure. Sure. Mm Yeah, I mean, I would say uh, from what I could see in Falmouth, too, it really was uh, a a fairly uh, small group of parents. Um, You know, they said that at one point they had maybe 40 people, um, a few of their own kids with them. But, you know, it seemed like a genuine um, thing with parents, not any sort of outside interest group or anything like that. Okay. Yeah. I have to ask, but that's good to know. (laughs) All right. Well, moving on to you, Arnie. So 
there is legislation, just so people know, called really colloquially known as a divisive concepts law, which essentially mirrors some of the other laws that have been passed around the country, that there shouldn't be any discussion of, quote, tough subjects that make people uncomfortable. Usually that falls around the issues of age, sex, gender identity, sexual orientation, race, creed, color, that kind of stuff. Uh, sometimes mental or physical disability, religion, all of that. And there was an attempt to reject that legislation. It's been in place for a year, and that failed. So it's still in place. The person that brought it forward, this repeal, said he had heard from educators and employers that this was really hard on them. Um, But it was repealed, so it's still a law. Well, what's so interesting about the divisive concepts law is that it actually didn't go come in as a separate law. It came in hidden in the budget. Okay, so they they couldn't pass it as an individual standalone bill. They had to shove it into the budget. Number one, number two, about twenty or twenty-four states, I think, were considering this. Only six passed the quote-unquote divisive concepts, and the only New England state to pass it was ours, of course. And um, it 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 is scary because you don't know what it means. And and does it mean you can teach slavery? Well, yes, you can. Teach teach about slavery, but you can't preach about slavery. Can you talk about racism? Yes, you can teach about racism, but you can't preach about racism. What does that mean, Callie? I don't know. I don't even I don't know. know. What I think they would and have so, to define it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, exactly. And so as a result, teachers are literally afraid to do it because they can actually be turned in uh, to the state. They could lose their license as a group called Moms for Liberty that is actually, you know, saying there's a bounty on the first teacher that loses their license of $500. And it turns out that Moms for Liberty is not a, really a New Hampshire-based group, but it's a Coke-funded group. So again, it's a chilling, chilling situation for teachers void for vagueness. They don't know what it means. They know that somehow, you know, if it offends someone, what does that mean to be offended? And um, and teachers are afraid because they feel like they've got a target on their back. And let's be honest, they do. Well, just to be clear, the Moms for Liberty did offer $500 to anybody who would essentially identify a teacher who appears to be, again, we've just discussed it's hard to define what divisive concepts are, but in their own tweet, they say, for the person that first successfully catches a public school teacher breaking this law, students, parents, teachers, school staff, we want to know, we will pledge anonymity if you want. So a lot of teachers are referring to that as a bounty on their head, and we can understand they would be quite uncomfortable with it, but that's a reality now. Actually, Moms for Liberty refers to it as a bounty. Yes. (laughs) So So, it's not like they're imagining it, Moms for Liberty. And and let me just say something. When you hear there's a group called Moms for Liberty, what are you imagining? You're imagining so women at a bake sale coming up with this idea that this is what they want to do. Well, we did some backstory work on Moms for Liberty, and it turns out that this group has registered three federal political action committees, including a super PAC that can take in unlimited donations. (laughs) So I want you to know that what they sound like and what they really are, are not the same thing. More often than not, you find groups like Moms for Liberty are supported by the Koch brothers, are supported by the Waltons. So again, they're coming up with this thing and they're being very effective. And uh, and they're sharing these kinds of divisive concepts, laws, or legislation around the country because there is an onslaught on public education. And this is a perfect way of doing it. If you don't know what it means, then you're afraid to teach. So Jeanette, um at least up my way, um, I've not heard of 
a group like Moms for Liberty, for example, going to the extent that they have in New Hampshire. Or for that matter, there has not been, there have been some discussion about it, of course, because we're all talking about it, but there's nobody that has pushed forward a divisive concepts bill or something like that here in the state house. Any movement down your way for people who are interested in this kind of legislation, which, as we've said, is across the country now? Well, there is one thing we've covered, I would say, that's related to this, and that is there's a movement in the town of Bourne to try to recall a school committee member for having similar types of views because of her social media posts, essentially, on gender identity and teaching about racism. She was also fired from a teaching job in a different school district, but she's on the school committee in Bourne, um, where she has the potential, of course, to contribute to policymaking decisions for the district. I have also heard of some uh, possible new candidates cropping up in other towns, school committee candidates, who share some of these same views. And it, it really feels like, you know, with everything that's going on in terms of trying to learn more about the history of racism in this country, that this is a reaction to that um, from the quarters where that is not well received, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. So the uh, in Born to to just sort of sum that up, in Born this this issue has been raised because there's a member of the school committee who's the target of a recall effort. Okay, Tim. What about in Rhode Island? Yeah, I mean there is no Moms for Liberty chapter in Rhode Island, and it it just is clear to me that at a very small level, uh, from a very big story that the teachers union in New Hampshire does not have the toehold with the General Assembly that it has in Massachusetts and certainly here in Rhode Island. But, you know, to echo Jeanette's point, we're seeing this tension at the district level, the school district level, and there have been lawsuits down here uh, specifically related to critical race theory and the teachings in the school. There have been huge requests for public records in these school districts just uh, requesting volumes of information. And it was not the district itself that tried to fight this in court. It was actually the teachers union, the NEA, that fought with the, the folks that were requesting this sort of information and so far have been successful in being able to block some of that information from getting into the people's hands who had requested it. But, Kelly, we're in an election year. Mm. And as Jeanette pointed out, I think this is going to be, particularly in the more rural and some of the suburban districts, this is going to be something we're going to see pop up as school committees might have a turnover with different candidates. Well, let's take a listen to Valerie Wolfson. She's an eighth grade social studies teacher in Durham, New Hampshire. And this is her response to New Hampshire's divisive concepts law. Let's imagine I spent three weeks repeating the phrase, white people were bad for America. And I really pointedly drove home this idea of guilt and shame in students, which I would never do. But if that was the way I chose to frame that story, a family um, could become alarmed and concerned. And under, under typical circumstances, they would reach out to me or my administrator and we would we would meet and we would discuss it and I would understand their concerns and maybe make a change. Under the new law, families can bypass all of those steps and go right to the state. The bottom line is if they found fault, um, a teacher could lose their teaching license permanently. It's a form of psychological warfare. Yeah, that's that's the poor teachers just don't know what to do, you know. 
Well, let me, let me just say something. Unlike Rhode Island and Massachusetts, we have a state commissioner of education, a fellow by the name of Frank Edelblut, and he really is behind this divisive concepts. He's behind things like, you know, the challenging of a critical race theory, of getting teachers uh, delicensed. I mean, the state, and by the state, I mean the Department of Education, has actually set up a website, everyone, to let parents and students turn in teachers that believe they have violated the law. I mean, they've, they're, they're going overboard in accommodating these parents. So think about this. You've got the Department of Education, the commissioner, setting up this website so that you can sort of rat on a teacher. And then you've got Moms for Liberty putting a bounty on it if you're successful. And these these sort of Frank Edelblut and Moms for Liberty are working hand in glove. You don't see that in Massachusetts. You don't see that in Rhode Island. But yet that's what you're seeing in New Hampshire. And that's what makes it such a toxic environment. Nobody has your back. Nobody is helping you understand what's going on here. In fact, what they're trying to do is frighten you so that you won't even be able to talk about things like slavery or racism because, God forbid, some parent assumes that you're teaching something you're not, and then they don't talk to you as you heard from that teacher. They go straight to the website, and they turn you in. And I would be remiss if I did not put a button on this conversation by saying, again, nowhere in this country is critical race theory being taught in K through 12. That is nowhere. I'm, I'm saying it a third time. It is taught in law schools, people. Maybe. Some law schools. That is it. So what is being described as critical race theory is bogus. That's all I want to say there. Okay. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson from WNHN, Tim White, investigative reporter for WPRI, and Jeanette Barnes, reporter for CAI. We're discussing the latest news in the region you might have missed. Uh, over to you, Tim. So this big deal sale of Rhode Island's national grid in Rhode Island may be off. Why do we care? And what does it mean if it doesn't go through? Well, I think everybody always cares about who their electric provider or their energy provider is going to be, right? National Grid, as you say, is up for sale in Rhode Island. And just the Rhode Island customers, which represent 780,000 customers, it would be the largest deal in Rhode Island history to the tune of $3.8 billion. And that does not include acquiring $1.5 billion in debt that National Grid has here in Rhode Island. The company that wants to buy it is out of Pennsylvania. They are called PPL. But Callie, as you point out, there's some questions about whether this deal is going to go forward. Uh, the attorney general here is trying to halt it. And this week, uh, he was in court asking a superior court judge to put a stay on the deal. So a decision we're still, as we talk right now, we're awaiting a decision on that one. But you know, I think National Grid, this is just us talking in the newsroom about why they want to put go up for sale here in Rhode Island. You got to remember, National Grid is really the only game in town here. Right. So when when something goes wrong, when there's a giant snowstorm and 50 percent of the people here are without power, there's no one else National Grid can share the blame with, uh, because, like I said, they're the only ones here. So I think that's you know they're always under the spotlight here in terms of when things happen and go wrong. I guess PPL doesn't mind that risk. So we'll see what happens there. I want to move on. There's discussion now about lobsters being red-listed. I'm going to let you explain that. But before you explain it, here is the Massachusetts Lobstermen's Association Executive Director Beth Cassoni calling on consumers and restaurants to stand by the local lobster fishery. 
Massachusetts lobstermen have been working hard over the last 30 years. So if you really want to support the right whale conservation, buy your lobsters from a local Massachusetts lobsterman. The potential red listing by a very popular ratings guide um, suggests that the way that the lobstermen are getting the lobsters may impact the right whales that we know are endangered. But uh, the Massachusetts folks have said very strongly, no, 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 that's not us. We, we've improved how we gather up the lobsters. Other places may be at fault, but not here. So what happened is that there's this influential list called the Red List um, put out by the Monterey Bay Aquarium in California, and it affects the seafood market because more than 25,000 businesses that want to um, use sustainable seafood use it as a buying guide, right? So there, this includes big names like Whole Foods, Red Lobster, Disney, and Aramark Food Service. So if those folks are taking a lobster off their menus, that could represent a big economic hit to the Massachusetts lobstermen. And they're recommending that people avoid trap-caught lobster from southern New England all the way up into Canada. And the problem, of course, with this, as you mentioned, is that the ropes that are used on the traps um, are a significant source of injury, sometimes fatal injury, to right whales, which are critically endangered. So... As we heard there, Beth Cassoni, who is the executive director of the Mass Lobstermen's Association, um, she was pretty much in disbelief when she heard about this. Um, and she did say that Massachusetts is kind of on the forefront of doing things differently and that, you know, they essentially should get some credit for that. They are following seasonal closures. They use weaker ropes that are designed to break when a whale gets entangled and things like that. Yeah. So there, the lobstermen certainly are unhappy about it. Conservation groups essentially say, yes, Massachusetts is doing some good things, but it's not enough for the right whales. Um, we'll keep an eye on that. Um, I want to go back to New Hampshire now, Arnie. So we've heard in many places there has been some tension around people who want to come back into a space and feel that the mitigation should continue. And by that, we mean wearing the mask the six feet apart, making sure that you're safe with the testing on all of that. In New Hampshire, the Republicans who are in charge say, we're going back, that's it. And no, we're not going to make any accommodations for immunocompromise. These are the the health concerns of some of the people who are protesting this, the Democrats. Somebody has advanced prostate cancer. That's House Democratic leader Rennie Cushing. Someone is on chemotherapy and someone else has had a transplant. These are serious immunocompromised issues. It's not like the others aren't, but these are advanced. It would seem that there would be some compromise there. So, so let me set the stage here. New Hampshire has the largest legislature in the United States. We have 400 members. Let me remind everyone, 400. Now, the 400 members, which starts out as a huge number anyway, where do they meet? They meet in the same building they've been meeting in since 1819. Let me repeat that date, 1819. Do you know how close we sit together? I mean, it's like sardines aren't as close as we are in the New Hampshire House. Uh, the kind of probably air circulation, as good as you think you can get it, you probably can't get a very good air circulation system in an 1819 facility with so many people packed together. Let me give you one more piece of information. 
We are the oldest legislature in the country, and I mean age old. The average age of a New Hampshire legislator is somewhere in like the mid-60s, okay? So they're the made up the rich, the retired, the remunerated, the old, and the sick, okay? That's who shows up. So because of that, what they're asking for is not that people who want to show up in the legislature to vote can vote, but whether certain individuals will be able to participate remotely because they are health compromised. We we can do that. We're doing that right now, Callie. Look what we're doing. All right. We don't have to be in the studio. We can still be involved and we can vote and exercise our, our engagement. What the Speaker of the House is doing is he's saying no. I am not going to allow remote participation. This is not going to be feasible. We're going to demand that you actually physically show up. Well, as you just mentioned, the New Hampshire minority leader, and I think to some extent this is targeted at him, uh, has actually said, I'm taking a medical leave of absence because I and my doctors say I can't physically show up because it could kill me because I am so health compromised. And so he is one of the people behind the remote request, but this feels so partisan and so vindictive and so targeted at him because we also have just a, a you know, the, the voting situation is really necessary for people to participate. And when the Democrats are in the minority, but not a significant minority, every vote matters. And by telling these individuals that they must physically be there, what they're basically doing, especially to Democrats, because those tend to be the people that have been asking for this, um, you can't participate even though you were elected and your constituents want you to participate. It's a really sad commentary. And they should be able to do something, but they don't want to accommodate it. Well, I'm going to keep an eye on that because I think that's that's going to be a test somewhere. It's, it's awful. It's, it it's, is. It's, it's to the extreme of, of what is going on in, in terms of this kind of tension in other places. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, I'm going back to you now, Tim, because of a story that you all broke about uh, this, quote unquote, naked fat test scandal. Um, so the former North Kingston High School boys basketball coach, Aaron Thomas, has been accused of getting several former student athletes to strip naked for so-called fat tests. Um, his attorney says his client will be cleared of wrongdoing. Let's listen to the attorney. And you come back on the other side and say why that may not be the case. But here we go. At the end of it all, um, it'll be determined that there was no untoward conduct on his part towards anybody. I just need to understand why one must be naked to take a fat test. Well, Kelly, you don't. Uh, we've talked to uh, multiple physical therapists and coaches who conducted fat tests. And, you know, it is what you think it is. They use a caliper device to pinch to get the body mass index and whatnot. And they all said it is completely unnecessary to remove your clothes. And apparently, according to the, uh, the former student athletes we talked to, uh, they said this had been going on for years and years and years. It was a worst kept secret uh, down in North Kingstown. And I think, Kelly, what happened in, in our reporting is, you know, students were do, uh, can, being subject to these tests behind closed doors in the coach's office. Some of them were asked to do stretches or other exercises completely in the nude. And, you know, uh, this is an authority figure doing this, so they just went along and, and did it. But as they got older, and as they had kids, they began to realize, wait a minute, that, that is not okay. And I wouldn't want my kids to be subject to that. So they came forward. Uh, we talked to a little under a dozen uh, for our initial report. And since then, it has really opened up 
Uh, it has launched a criminal investigation by the Attorney General's office. You just heard from Timothy Dodd, who is Aaron Thomas's attorney, as you said, Callie. It has also launched an investigation by the U.S. Attorney's office, and this is a civil investigation looking to see what the school did and did not do in terms of, you know, what did you know and when did you know it, and if they let the, the students down. And now our state, Rhode Island Department of Education, is also looking into it uh, because there have been uh, some former students that came forward that said, look, we, we told the administration this is going on, going on back in 2018 and nothing was ever done. I should note Aaron Thomas ultimately resigned in 2021, so at least a little under three years based on, on what the students said from when they notified the school district that this was going on. I haven't heard anybody say, use the word abuse, but is that being used in this situation? Certainly by the uh, attorney representing some of the former student athletes here, he has used the word abuse uh, by um, allegedly by Aaron Thomas, that there was some inappropriate uh, touching that went on. And certainly what I described earlier, uh, that uh, I think there would be a lot of parents who are listening to this right now who would say that is abuse, right? Because uh, even if it is um, at a minimum, Kelly, mental abuse on, on the students and you know, in talking to them years later, they think about this yeah. and they picture their own kids. Uh, and if they were in that situation and it, it brings it all back for them. So to them, uh, I think it, it easily reaches the definition uh, of abuse. Again, Aaron Thomas uh, denies that. Wow. Kelly, can I ask a question? Uh, I'm curious, sure. was he a winning coach? Yeah, that's a great question. That, that, uh, that, that is that is that what kept going through my mind is it's been going on. It was like this dirty little secret that everybody knew, and it went on for so long. I keep thinking that he must be winning a lot of basketball games. Arnie, he was the he was the pride of North Kingstown. Mm, there you he, go. I, Thank you very um, much. He won a state championship. Um, I believe it was in 2017 or 18. So it was um, he he was a big deal. Uh, you you yeah. hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Wow. Um, I'm going to squeeze this not-so-happy story at the very end, Jeanette, it's in your lap. Uh, this is about Massachusetts' only nuclear power plant dumping radioactive waste into Cape Cod Bay, which just on its face just gives me the, the creeps. And a lot of locals are fighting plans. NBC Boston captured some of their comments at the Plymouth Town Hall meeting. I think it would have a definite negative effect, and it would impact tourism and and retail businesses. The livelihood of so many providing nourishment to so many more might be forever lost. We fiercely oppose the dumping of even one drop of nuclear waste into Cape Cod Bay by the Holtec Corporation. But, you know, it's not clear that anybody has any authority to stop it from the state right now. Right, right. The company, the company that uh, owns the plant, they're decommissioning it, right? So it hasn't actually been running for years, but this process called decommissioning means they're removing or storing the radioactive material. And um, they've proposed, as you say, one of the options, dumping the water into Cape Cod Bay. Uh, that appears to be probably their favorite option or one they said they want to include. So one of the big points of debate has been, as you say, what government entity has the authority here? Because normally, the conventional wisdom, at least, is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has the authority and they actually allow this kind of dumping. So mm -hmm. The activists and the politicians here locally are looking for ways to try to um, allow the state or the EPA even to exercise some kind of authority. 
One way to do that um, is if they find non-nuclear pollutants in the water as well. So um, the EPA recently sent a letter to the plant saying they should provide an analysis of what's in the water before they do anything. Because the plant has an environmental permit for water release, which they have done in the past, these releases, but they have to meet the conditions of the Clean Water Act. And so there, you know, of course, there's like limits on the various substances that can be in the water. So not too long ago, the EPA issued this letter to the, the plant. On the one hand, they are, this is their first time stepping in. So that's notable. But as the group Pilgrim Watch, which is kind of the local neighbors, has pointed out, is the, the, their problem with that is the EPA's in this letter is relying essentially on the company to provide its own data about what's in the water. Mm. Um, and they're saying the state DEP should be taking its own samples, doing its own testing and all of this. Well, I hate to end on that note, but we're going to have to. Um, I appreciate all of your insight. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Arnie Arneson is the host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson from WNHN. Tim White is a Target 12 investigative reporter for WPRI. And Jeanette Barnes is a reporter and producer for CAI. Coming up, just a few decades ago, the concept of a woman wanting or needing to exercise was thought to be unnecessary and unfeminine. But during the 20th century, several women pioneered the idea of women's fitness for strength and health. Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World, traces the pivotal moments in the American women's workout movement. It's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley.